Well, honestly, I think crypto as a word is bad marketing, right? And that uh, I'll say very like directly, uh, Bitcoin is not crypto and crypto is not Bitcoin. The beautiful thing that Bitcoin does for the American people is every time a politician says, hey, I'm for freedom, I'm for individual liberty, I'm for this and that, Bitcoin just says, prove it. Hey y'all, welcome to the Taking Care of Bitcoin podcast. Here we talk to Bitcoin noobs and answer all their new to Bitcoin questions. So if you're new to Bitcoin or you're curious about Bitcoin, you've come to the right place. Let's take care of it. TCB, baby. Hey everybody, welcome back to TCB. Uh, I got uh, Jace Sparks on TCB. Jace, what's up, man? Thank you for coming on the show. Yeah, man. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. Uh, tell everybody who you are, dude. Little uh, little introduction. Okay. Um, yeah. So yeah, a little random because I'm all over the place. But um, currently, I'm the chief product officer for a global media brand. Um, I oversee everything from five television networks to a mobile gaming studio, as well as uh, some influencer marketing networks. Uh, I looked into that a little bit. So, it's, uh, is that all out of India? Or are you guys kind of everywhere, and India is just a big market for uh, you? What's the deal? Yeah, so we're we're everywhere, um, and, and I'm glad you touched on the India aspect. But uh, yeah, I mean, we're based you know here in the U.S. and Canada, and you know, aforementioned India. But one of the reasons why we're in India is it's the fastest growing youth market on the planet. And uh, if you watch CNBC, it was the big talking point of the week that, you know, India has just surpassed China in terms of uh, population. And uh, more specifically, it's the youth uh, population. So uh, India has the highest concentration of youth on the planet right now. And, uh, you know, they have 1.4 billion people. And we believe that that's where you want to be right now. Yeah, I think that's probably pretty, pretty accurate. It seems to be like the main kind of next emerging market. I mean, just like when it comes to like human capital, just like regular capital, techno- technological like things burgeoning out of there. So that's really interesting, man. I saw I just I was looking at some of your stuff and I saw there was like a bunch of travel there and things like that. I was like, oh, that's pretty cool. So um, when it comes to India or otherwise, man, what's your uh, what's your Bitcoin take since it's a Bitcoin show? What's your uh, what did you first kind of come across Bitcoin or get into it? And what's kind of your take on it? So I got orange pilled in uh, 2017 um, by a friend of mine who works in the media industry. And um, I like to read the news a lot. And I was looking about how much money we were printing at the time, which, you know, in retrospect, wasn't that much compared to what happened in 2020 and 2021. Um, and, yeah. you know, I was just doing some mental math on it and reading more about modern, modern, uh, modern monetary theory and just realized like, wow, like, you know, we're paying for everything. When I say we, I mean society, you know, and I wanted to figure a way that I could take more control over my life and, uh, you know, and not allow external forces to devalue my currency. Yeah. So, uh, that's interesting. Cause I, was, I know they're talking about, we just hit that debt ceiling, you know, 31.4 trillion. And, uh, now they're kind of kicking around how that's going to be a big fight. And then, kind of resurfacing. I don't know if you've seen that old idea of like potentially minting like a $1 trillion coin as if you could just make a coin out of thin air and then like 
money is just magic and all the problems just go away. And it's just like, I mean, so, even that the idea that that, that, um, that that idea gets kicked around just sends me just like trigger signals of just like, oh my God, they literally <laughs> don't understand how money works. Well, so, so I'm about to give a contrarian point of view on this, but in a way I do agree with you, right? See, they know exactly how money works, right? And they know it's insane, but they know that also we're going to be forced to take it, right? So I was reading this interesting thing the other day about, you know, comparisons between Bitcoin and fiat, right? And the best way you can look at it is that there's 190 nodes that operate U.S. Uh, you know, currency, right? They have the ability to print and maintain the ledger, right? They can, and that's what the Fed, you know, the Fed is like the central, like centralized ledger, right? They can revoke, you know, seize or deny transactions. They're the only node that can do that. But like other central banks, there's 190 of them. They have that same ability to issue and print that currency. And so like, you know, coming back and like hitting that point you're making, oh, they know exactly what they're doing, right? And, and what I mean by that specifically is, you know, what the government doesn't have to run, um, you know, uh, money or like, like a budget, like we as a household have to run it, right? Like we have to have these debt obligations where to pay our bills where the U S government is like, you know what, we don't have money. We're just going to print it. Right. So anything they want to do, they just can print it. And a really interesting point of view of like the, you know, really stress to your viewers is that the government literally can never run out of money. They literally can never run out of money because they can just print more of it. And, you know, what happens is, you know this and I know this, is that what holds them in check, there's only one metric that holds the government in check, and that's inflation, right? And if inflation gets out of control, then they're like, oh, maybe we should start, like, that contraction. And that's where the Fed, you know, obviously raises rates. And we wind up exactly where we are today, where Jerome Powell is just like, you know what, I'm turning that printer off at the moment. Yeah, no, hundred percent. Yeah, it's interesting to kind of look at it from from that perspective because you look at that that inflation rate in all these kind of different state mo like monetary monopolies all over the world that are just in kind of like relative, uh, you know, relative decline in one one way or another. Whether it's like yeah, us we're at like nine percent or six percent if you believe that number. That's not what it, it's probably like ten or fifteen percent at least, but. But then you look at like in Argentina, they just printed like a 95% inflation rate oh. or Turkey and Lebanon is like 70 something percent. So everyone's kind of relative decay. And it's, it's kind of been interesting to me. I think about this where uh, we're always kind of in this race amongst kind of uh, just who debases faster, but it's always kind of a relative currency game. And then I think what Bitcoin did is all of a sudden you kind of just put like a, like a referee or like a true litmus test on the field that no longer is it just a bunch of relative monopolies debasing and stealing from their people at like differing rates. You suddenly have this like true North kind of pull that everything's going to have to be kind of looked at and tied to. And it's really going to kind of expose it all. Cause all of a sudden it's like, that one's not going to be just, you know, just like you said, like they print as much as they want or they can print as much as they want, but you're just going to see that peg get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And it's just going to expose the whole kind of game. So, uh, I mean, I don't, I don't know exactly how that ends. I don't know what it kind of looks like, but it, it is kind of this idea of like the monopoly is breaking. And finally, there's just something that 
nobody is there's no human fallibility so there's nothing's messing with it so it's just true math kind of holding up a mirror to all kind of the manipulation going on in any kind of you know one state money system whether it's us or any any of the others oh yeah i mean uh, what you just said was so succinct and accurate and, and you know it's really great to talk to someone that's you know knowledgeable of the monetary system as well as passionate about bitcoin because most of the time i'm like you i'm trying to orange pill people and you know you know to your audience i you know i'm not a bitcoin maximalist but i'm pretty close i like to say it, yeah. because I, I love technology i'm a technologist so i love exploring like how blockchain can enable other technologies but you know this is a bitcoin podcast so i'm going to stay on topic as much as i can and uh, yeah, man, you're, you're dead on. And uh, one of the things that you pointed out that I, I find very fascinating, very interesting, and I'm always trying to find the parallels, like I, I mentioned earlier, between like fiat and Bitcoin and, you know, the language that we choose to use. And one thing that I find very interesting is that there's like approximately 180 currencies, like uh, sovereign currencies on the planet, right, that are outside of, you know, U.S. dollars, and it's best to think of those as layer two solutions where U.S. dollars is the layer one network, right? And the further away you get from the layer one network, U.S. dollars, what you just said is absolutely true is that inflation increases because you everybody has to take their cut, right? Everybody has to take their margin, right? And in Forex trading, that's where a lot of these conversions to U.S. dollars and that, uh, that profit is made. And the further away, and this is so sad, the further away you are from the printer, the more fees you're actually paying and the more value you're losing as a sovereign human being. And what I love, and I, I truly believe it's a miracle that you know Satoshi you know, just bestowed upon us is the concept of proof of work, right? Where a lot of people like sit and they think of that as more like a buzzword, right? And some people kind of flippantly throw it like around, like trying to sound smart. And, you know, they don't really understand what it really is. But what proof of work is, is exactly what you just laid out. It's accountability, right? And it, it's a preventive measure to, you know, not allow people to print freely, as well as to earn that currency that is on the network. And it is available to anyone on the planet that has access to hack power, the internet, and some form of electricity. So it is the first system in humanity that not only is hard money, but it is a, a currency that is able to be universally uh, tra traverse space and time effortlessly and allow people to maintain their value as well as participate in global trade. Nothing like that exists. And, you know, when you dive into the Fed and their monopoly on things like the SWIFT messaging system, and what we talked about earlier is how they can turn off and turn on people whenever they want, seize money, take it away, not your keys, not your coins, right? You will always be in possession of your Bitcoin and you will be able to um, interact with society on your terms and nothing like that has ever existed before. Yeah, no, that yeah, it's true. And I, th I think about that proof of work. It's kind of I see the pendulum swinging on that a little bit because I think all people could focus on with the proof of work idea was in the beginning, like how much energy it uses. And that seemed like a real kind of negative. But then they, they failed to understand that, like it really proof of work really is the innovation. I mean, like being a digital currency doesn't really matter. In fact, if you have a digital currency, it it in theory can just be copy and pasted forever 
in an absent of proof of work system because what proof of work allows it to do is like you you cannot essentially you cannot create any units of this currency without offering up some productivity in return so like even just circling back to the idea of like hey we're just going to we're just going to mint a trillion dollar coin but it's not going to be backed by a trillion dollars of productivity. So all you're going to do is you're going to find a trillion dollars of productive capacity in all of the other units of currency that are already out there. So you're essentially like that trillion dollar coin is just going to like pickpocket a trillion dollars worth of productive capacity out of everyone's savings or everybody's currency that holds a dollar anywhere. So it's kind of that idea that like you can't, I mean, we got into this problem in the first place because you could create money out of nothing. And what proof of work prevents you from doing is creating money out of nothing. You have to actually have skin in the game and you actually have to produce something. You have to give something in return to actually get units of currency, which just prevents the inflation game, runaway inflation game that the whole world is experiencing from happening. Because you just can't, no matter how badly your situation gets and how badly you want to just create money out of thin air, with a proof of work system, you can't do that. I mean, that on exactly like we can just end the podcast there. You're, you're welcome society. That That is the perfect <laughs> summation of, of, you know, what proof of work is and, and just chiming in on the climate thing. Right. So uh, I'm going to try to keep this as responsible as possible and not got, like dive into why people would, you know, amplify that narrative. But like, you know, the truth of the matter is, is, you know, world governments need Bitcoin to fail. Right, they need it to fail, and I can explain this very simply. Right, the second you have that accountability in the system, and you eradicate the ability to print, right, that means you know bonds or or you know uh, this this crazy amount of debt that you know society will ultimately pay for you, um, right? Like you start on like global GDP um, that wasn't really responsible before. So if you want to go back in time, you can look at uh, I'll give you two examples. 1914, right, was the first time the European Central Bank drifted off, like, the gold standard, right? And the reason why they did that is because they were going into the Great War, right? And everybody was freaking out. They were raiding the bank. There was a run on the bank for people to get their gold, you know, because they're like, okay, like, obviously, France Ferdinand's been killed. Uh, we're about to go into a, a major world conflict. And what they did as they stopped people from being able to redeem their gold and they issued a major bond to finance the war and they started issuing notes to say, hey, we'll pay you X amount of interest to redeem this note. That note was not backed by anything. And ultimately, we can you know, fast forward to 1971, Richard Nixon and you know, other people studied the playbook and realized you know, maybe the gold standard is slowing us down because we can raise all this money to finance this great industrial revolution you know, they were big about deregulation in those times. We could have all this debt that American citizens will ultimately pay for, and we can finance all these initiatives that we want to do, whether it be wars or um, global infrastructure. And it, it's kind of crazy when you think about it because that money was backed by nothing. And what I'm discovering, you know, in 2023, which is very sad, is that a lot of people still don't understand that the U.S. dollar is actually backed by nothing. And that, that 1971 decision and, you know, those choices that were made in the Bretton Woods agreement, you know, all the way to the Jekyll Island decisions, like, and I highly recommend you research these, you know, things I'm dropping right now. And it'll take you down a rabbit hole. Um, 
if you're listening, uh, it's just crazy. That's where we are today because in a way it was meant to be temporary. And now we've created this monster, which you talked about earlier, where we're now $31 trillion in debt. And if you were to calculate that and say every individual citizen of the United States is responsible for their share, it's going to be well over $90,000 a citizen to pay that off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, we've been there a long time, and you're totally speaking my language here. And like anyone that's been listening to this podcast, we've we've touched on a lot of those things about Nixon closing the gold window. And I actually think um, there was an element to that uh, Great War kind of story where they were trying to sell war bonds to kind of to to Britain, the British people, to finance the war, but they weren't buying them. Like nobody was really interested in coming and like financing this war. So I've heard that they actually set up a couple shell buyers and just had these kind of just random guys that they just kind of printed money, get washed it through these guys to like buy all the bonds. And just like you said, like that was kind of the first time where they just started to manipulate this system where, okay, it's not going to be tied to anything real. We are going to manipulate it. We are going to add a paper layer. Sometimes I think it's, it can get to the point where, you're kind of accusing people of being evil. And just like you said before, it's like, yeah, they know exactly what they're doing. And a lot of times it seems like you kind of go down two roads. You're like, well, I don't know. Are they, are they just stupid or are they actually evil? And like neither option is good when you're talking about people kind of running the global like economic situation. But I think it, in, in some ways they could have just stumbled upon it because they had gold. Gold was working. And then I think as kind of technology started to speed up economic activity, Gold just couldn't really keep up. So in absent a technological solution like Bitcoin or a digital solution, they kind of created a paper layer, just like we were talking about layered money, where whether it'd probably be gold would probably be layer one, and then like the dollar would probably be layer two after Bretton Woods. And then you kind of like the dollar was kind of the um, like if gold is the store of value layer, the dollar was kind of the medium of exchange level or layer that mm-hmm. allowed it to be circulating through a global economy kind of faster. But then, you know, once you kind of lost that peg, so it wasn't, I, I guess, like in the, it wasn't necessarily nefarious from the beginning. I just think once they kind of started to add this debt layer to increase velocity in money, then it was just too tempting to just abuse that power, you know? And, and then, then you get to the point where we are, we get today where it's just like, ah, just a little more, ah, just a little more, ah, what's another few trillion? And then all of a sudden you're just, 31 trillion and beyond repair and can't get can't get any of it back so i I like to think it was like sometimes people look at bitcoin they're like well i don't really get it it uses a lot of energy what like and and obviously if you don't see the value proposition it seems like the energy is a total waste but my new way of trying to kind of explain to people like the idea of like okay well why does bit why does bitcoin have any value at all and i kind of say it was like well you know they understand why gold has value. Gold has value because it's a store of value that's proven itself over thousands of years. They understand why currency has value because, you know, that's what you're going around paying your day-to-day life with. So obviously I can go exchange that for eggs or gas or, you know, a hotel room or whatever I need. We understand why that has value. And then you kind of take the next layer of, um, like, considering it as a financial network. So if you could compare it to, like, a Visa or a PayPal you know, we, we all use those. We use credit cards every day. We'll send Venmo to our friends. So we understand why a payment network has value. And then so what I tell people is like, well, if you understand why gold has value, you understand why currency has value, and you understand why payment networks have value, what if you had something that was all of those things? And that's what Bitcoin is. It's a store value that mm-hmm. is a currency that's also a payment network simultaneously. So it's, it's taking all of these valuable things and just packaging them up into one 
and being like, here, now tell me this thing is worthless. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, because, I, by the way, I'm very humbled that you know so much about uh, the history of that $300 million bond. Uh, you're the first person that I've ever met in my entire life that just knew that right off the rip, right? So, like, I'm like, I have goosebumps that I'm talking to someone like yourself right now. And I just want to say I'm deeply appreciative that you would have me on your podcast. It's, it's awesome. Uh, wow, that was awesome. Um, I'm a nerd, man. So, like, when I talk about these things, like, you know, most of the time people are just like, what? What do you even mean? And uh, a little yeah. fun fact is that that uh, that thing you talked about, right, where that $300 million bond, they actually amplified in the newspapers that it was oversubscribed, right? It was oversubscribed. It was a huge success, right? And we didn't find out that that was fraud until 2019 where the European Central Bank published it quietly on their website, right? That didn't come out till, you know, after everybody was dead, like 85 years later, yeah. that came out. And so that just like goes back to what you're talking about. Like, is it evil? Like, uh, uh, or maybe is it like, uh, we don't know, like just a little bit more, a little bit more. Oh my gosh. So uh, yeah, I just love that you, you, you know your history, you're a historian. That's great. Um, oh man, I'm so excited right now. So I, I'm a little, I'm a little beside myself. Yeah, no, yeah, that's uh, interesting. I think sometimes it's one of those things. Almost, I feel about this way um, about kind of the SBF FTX collapse. I mean, obviously the dude's a scumbag, lost a lot of people, a lot of money. Mm-hmm. But even that, I wonder, was like, was that evil from the very beginning, or did they just like make a couple dumb moves, get over their skis, and then try to cover it up? Almost like, almost like when a kid gets left home alone. It puts a hole in the drywall and then tries to like blame the dog, you know, just like tries to cover up one bad decision with like 10 more bad decisions. And maybe it just got completely out of their control. I mean, I don't know if they deserve the benefit of the doubt. I think they really just deserve to go to jail for a really long time, but it is kind of this idea of like, you know, maybe, maybe, a uh, you know, a decently incentivized decision in the beginning just ends up over time, just getting, just getting out of hand and getting to an irreparable place. So, so chiming in on that real quick is that I, I have a very like almost binary view of that whole entire situation, which is if I make risk, if I make risky decisions and in investment and I fail, I'm okay with that, right? Like, you know, liquidity dries up, there's a bank run, right? Or the network goes down, but it's not necessarily maliciousness. It's just, you know, things don't work out, right? I'd be willing to accept that, you know, okay, SBF took a risk, you know, it didn't really work out. You know, I, I was aware of everything in the terms of service, et cetera. Where I draw the line with him specifically and the FTX blow up is that very clearly in the terms of service, it talks about that your funds are your funds and will not be commingled. You know, like it will not be drawn, you know, from other things. Right. Right. Like that's fraud. Right. There is no debate about it. It was straight up fraud. So, yeah, I like. Like that he that dude's evil. He's a scumbag, and he deserves to go to prison for the rest of his life because he just yeah, yeah, lied no to d- people and he continued the lie. Yeah, sure. Yeah, no doubt. I just like I think my point there is just like you know maybe Alameda took a like took a trade that was not backed by customer funds at the beginning. That trade went completely south on them, and then instead of just owning up to the fail, taking the L, they were like, oh hey, maybe if we just borrow a little bit of this other money. And leverage it again, we could get ourselves out of this hole and just act like and just paper it all over and act like nothing ever happened. And then all of a sudden that trade goes south also, and you're just like, oh shit! Now what do we do? Now like, 
like it could have been a small problem now it's like a 10 billion dollar problem and now we're just like we have no like you're just there's no repair at that point so like i I don't know that's what happened like i'd be looking forward to like when this movie comes out you know and jonah hill is getting put in handcuffs and we figure out what the hell just happened here but uh i mean i think it could have been that he's like hey man i'll just borrow a little bit of this money try to save my girlfriend or get her out of a bad spot over here in alameda and then you know once that trade went bad also they're like oh oh crap and they just lost control or they put their hand in the cookie jar one time and then they're like hey we can do that again nobody caught that hey we can do that again nobody caught that and so i think it i mean i don't know it could have been just straight up malicious from the very beginning i get the feeling it was maybe Maybe a uh, a bad trade in the beginning, and then a bunch of bad decisions to try to re- recover from that bad trade. But we'll see. Yeah, I mean, I, I get what you're saying, right? But there's a lot of evidence to say flat out that you know Alameda was shorting UST, right? They were the ones that actually broke the peg, and ultimately they created the monster that ultimately ended up taking them down, right? And there's been enough like back and forth from you know very in the know people, you know, uh, you know, three arrows capital being, you know, one of them, uh, they're being a little bit more vocal today. And obviously they're in jurisdictions like, uh, where are they at now? They're in a, doesn't matter. Bali, they're in Bali, right. Where they're not going to be extradited by the United States. So they're talking a lot and, you know, uh, yes, it is very possible that, you know, Sam Trabuco was like, you know, what? I'm going to make some bad trades and, you know, I'll make it all back in one trade that meme that we all love it like to see on crypto Twitter, but ultimately, yeah. right. Where I have a major problem with their trading strategy is that, you know, it's kind of, we're kind of a, a victim of, you know, growing too fast as an industry is there's not a lot of regulation on, you know, transparency and, you know, showcasing like, you know, proof of reserves. So I actually hold us as a, a community accountable for some of those things as well as that, you know, Trabuco knows how to trade. He's, he's not a moron. He's a very intelligent person. And they had no risk aversion. They were trading. If you go back in the old interviews, they were yield farming. They were trading things like magic internet money, right? And going back to Bitcoin, you probably know this better than, you know, the majority of the people you speak to, is you never get rid of your coins, right? You don't trade your Bitcoin. You keep your Bitcoin. And they were trading absolute, forgive my language, absolute shit coins, Right. There is a degree of just uh, I, I don't even know what to call it, just stupidity. And they were playing in these sandboxes where they had no right to be with people's money. So that's kind of where I stand on that. Yeah, no, I agree with that 100 percent. I think it's just a matter of like I tried to kind of see like, hey, was this just like evil from Jump Street or did this turn evil somehow? Similar to the kind of the war bonds thing. I just kind of had that parallel in my head. Uh but uh, yeah, from that, I was like, I mean, I, I agree. And I think like what it's, it, it kind of dovetails into what I feel like. I know like we, you mentioned, hey, you're not really a Bitcoin maximalist. I'm probably pretty, pretty dang close to being a Bitcoin maximalist at this point, I think. <laughs> but I think uh, talking to you, I can also tell that like it's more nuanced than that. And I think that's what's kind of maybe bothered me about that argument from the beginning is it's like it's either it's only this or none of this or like it's it's very binary in a way that doesn't really make sense because mm-hmm. you seem to be um, – you know, you seem to be aware that like you you hate the kind of scammy shit like FTX that puts a bad mark on the name. And I think some of the Bitcoin maximalist um, kind of posture comes from this idea that like uh, they kind of see Bitcoin as this kind of mission of kind of like trying to separate money and state. And then they see all these kind of crypto scams as 
uh, really detracting from that mission and really confusing the general mm-hmm. public about what's really going on here and what it could potentially be. But that doesn't mean that there's other projects that aren't scams. Like, so it's it doesn't have to be baby with the bathwater kind of thing. So I'm curious what your uh, kind of thought on that is as far as kind of like that Bitcoin versus crypto beef and kind of like what, what how you kind of see it. If you're like, because you seem to like, you seem to kind of hate scams, but you're not a big Bitcoin maxi and you see potential in these other projects. So I'm just curious to pick your brain on that. Well, honestly, I think crypto as a word is bad marketing, right? And that... Uh, I'll say very like directly uh, Bitcoin is not crypto and crypto is not Bitcoin. Right. I feel like crypto is every other coin outside of Bitcoin. Right. I have a very hard separation between Bitcoin is what I believe the absolute truth. Right. And there's many reasons we can go on that. You and I probably could film 10 podcasts about this because I mean, obviously you're a deep historian with money. I am as well. And, um, you know, we could go on and on about why I believe Bitcoin is the truth, right? And so I have a hard separation, and I'm very happy to describe what that is. And that's just, I'm a technologist, right? I do believe that there are efficiencies that blockchain can enable, but they are absolutely not synonymous with Bitcoin, right? They're literally comparing the internet to a fax machine, right? And I'm not going to you know, say, I mean, Bitcoin's like the internet. It's the end all be all, right? It could actually solve a lot of the world's problems with war and, you know, global like commerce. And once again, we can go on a huge rabbit hole of that. So, but let me just dive into crypto. You know, I'm holding up air quotes right now for everyone. Um, so there's a lot of things that I believe that should be transparent, right? That things never could um, happen before without blockchain, right? With the uh, Blockchain voting could be something that could legitimately change the infrastructure of our country, right? Especially when we start pushing forward. I I believe that 2024, 2025 is going to be the year of digital identity. And uh, a lot of people just go on with like, you know, um, DID, credential-based identity. But I'm going to say something that's kind of like crazy and people are going, what is he talking about? But if I I, like get to one person, it might matter. So I'm going to really go for it. Is that... If you pull out your wallet right now and you hold up your driver's license, a lot of people would be confused and say, hey, this is my identity. And I'm here to tell you, it absolutely is not your identity. That is a credential that the government has chosen to allow you to have, meaning at any time they can revoke it. So you don't actually have control of your identity. And that's really, 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 really important. And that's something that crypto and blockchain can enable, saying I am who I say I am. My biometrics define me, and my biometrics are what enable me to interact with the planet, and it prevents a few very important things. I'm going to just chime on those really quick, and then I want to hear your thoughts on this because I'm very curious, which is right now we operate in a world right now where anybody can have uh, as many Smurf accounts as they want. A Smurf account is like I can have 10 different accounts. I can vote on one thing as 10 different people, right? But in reality, I'm one unique individual. And so what digital identity is going to allow, right? Or well, rather, it's going to prevent, it's going to prevent deduplication and it's going to enable proof of humanness. So it's going to get rid of bots and it's going to prevent certain bad actors from doing what's called a civil attack, right? Creating multiple identities to sway a vote. 
right? And I feel like that is probably one of the most paramount, most important things as a society we can enable within the next two years, especially with the advances of things like AI technology, as well as if, I mean, you watch the news, not getting political, but everybody's talking about like, did Russia sway this election? Did, you know, some other, you know, world government like implement things to sway people? Well, if you have a proof of identity and a proof of humanness and you enable deduplication, you can eradicate those bad things that are now starting to permeate through our uh, society. Yeah, man, I would agree with that 100%. And I think uh, I've, I've actually had the same election thing. I was like, I was watching all the election fraud stuff and whether it's outright fraud or just questioned. And like now that we have blockchain, the fact that nobody um, in an election context is specifically talking about blockchain gives me pause as well. I'm like, we know we have this technology. We know we could have a 100% validated, verifiable election next election. So why is this not being implemented immediately as soon as you know you have that capability? So like that, but that's one of the things where kind of where it comes kind of the Bitcoin maxi. I think, I think it's confused a little bit because like, uh, like decentralization is like a buzzword is kind of thrown out as for to like everything. Right. And in, and in reality, I think decentralization is pretty inefficient. Like, because, you know, having to send data to like thousands and thousands of nodes is not the most efficient way of doing things. But for Bitcoin, it's essential because Bitcoin is taking on very powerful enemies like state actors, central banks, those kind of things. It has to like make security its number one. It has to be super resilient, super robust. So it's that decentralization is necessary for that. But it's not necessarily necessary for a bunch of other things where blockchain could actually be useful. You know, any, any company can maybe use blockchain in a much smaller scale that is not as energy intensive, doesn't have to be quite as secure and just could run on like 10 nodes or something like that. But there, but it's an easy way for them to kind of share information amongst a, uh, you know, a multinational or like, just like even within a, within a company, you know, so there's, there's going to be a bunch of use cases that don't have to go fully, uh, decentralization incentivize the way that Bitcoin does. It's like, it's, it's what it's like a living organism. It turns it into a Hydra. It makes it so it can't be killed and can't be regulated away. It can't be captured. So it's important for that, but not necessarily for other things, but that doesn't mean other uses of blockchain are just all scams or all a waste of time. And I would completely agree with the idea of like decentralizing your identity. I think our problem kind of now is in order to interact online, you have to kind of give up everything. You know, it's like if I want to go get a bank account, I have to give them my address and my my social security number and my date of birth and like and they're just farming all of your data, but it's private companies that are doing that, right? So like they're just yeah. they're just slowly building. I mean, they know what you eat, they know when you sleep, they know everything about you where a lot of times all they really need to know like uh, I heard somebody explain this to me in a way that kind of hit home for me was like the idea of kind of a zero knowledge proof idea. But if like, if I have, if I'm going into a bar, right. And I'm kind of showing them that ID, all they need to know is that I'm 21. You know, they don't need to know Correct. when I was born. They don't need to know where I live. They don't need to know my name even like none of that had, but all of that is given over because they just scan it. They take it, they whatever. And that's a really basic example of just trying to get into a bar. But you know, why, why is that necessary when I buy something on Amazon or I interact with anything online? It was like, they're just taking all of your data. You're kind of, mm -hmm. you are the product they're, they're target adding to you. So like, 
if we can use this cryptography to create, just like you said, if you can have a digital identity that's actually protected where you can interact with anything online that can verify it's you or can verify it's your account or can verify it's whatever without actually giving that information over to whoever you're interacting with or whatever company you're interacting with, then you can kind of become kind of like that sovereign individual idea where, you know, you're not the product anymore. Like you're the customer again, which I don't, I don't, I don't, like, I don't have enough technical understanding to like understand how that's going to work. I'm not going to like get off of this and code this up on my laptop, but that's where I see this going is like kind of like, um, like an NFT, you become an NFT, you become non-fungible. So there's only one you and no one can copy you and nobody can create a second version of you in a digital space. So if I go to do something online or if I go to purchase something online, like the blockchain enables it to know like, yes, this is him and there's only one him. And if it wasn't him, this interaction, like this interaction or this transaction will not go through. I imagine it like, I imagine people kind of becoming NFTs in some form or fashion, like that's conceptual, obviously. I don't know that I have the technical know-how, but I think I think that's how that is, is going to play out. So I would like to tell you you're dead on, um, and that's a part of the project that I helped, uh, like actually helped facilitate uh, last year, and it's called Everest.org, and it's uh, you use your biometrics as your private key to unlock what we're calling um, uh, the your datagram. Your datagram, you only allow certain pieces of your information out uh, that you choose to. And like you said, it's check mark. Are you 21? Check, right? You don't need to know anything beyond that. Um, if I have to have, say I have a social security number, then I'm a sovereign individual of the United States, check, right? And just releasing those pieces, and this is the most important piece, it's a burnable NFT. So once the acknowledgement has happened, that NFT is burned. Right, so your datagram is only sent out, and then it phones home, acknowledges it, and that information is wiped. So very, very, very important that that last piece happens because over time you can start to build that profile, and you don't necessarily want that as well. Yeah, interesting. I've actually never even kind of come across that, but that makes perfect sense. I mean, yeah, because I mean they can they can you know through one transaction they can get your birthday, and then through another transaction they get your name, and then they get your address somewhere else. And like it doesn't take very long if you look at like what Chat GPT is able to do to just get get everything exactly. you got. So like that idea of like I mean you always hear burning in the sense of like you know just a way of kind of like paying for transactions in a way. But yeah, the idea that you would actually be able to send data and that gets burned in the same same manner is really really interesting. Like, I, I love that idea, and I'll have to ruminate on that a little bit. Um, when it comes to all those kind of crypto things, uh, I have the thought sometimes, as I remember when I got, a, got into this stuff in the, in the beginning, I, I came to Bitcoin first because I came to it from the debt side, from the economy side, from, you know, being kind of an Austrian, libertarian-minded individual. So, but then when I started looking into it and, like, looked at all these other projects and, like, just like everyone does, tried to wrap my head around what was going on with this whole space uh, – my my initial or my eventual thought was, doesn't it make more sense just to build all of this stuff on top of Bitcoin? So as like Bitcoin becomes kind of the the kind of underlying protocol layer and then everything gets layered on top of it. So instead of having like multiple coins for multiple different use cases 
kind of in like a Chuck E. Cheese kind of way where like you gotta you know you gotta have the tokens to buy to get the tickets to play the skee ball. Like wouldn't it make sense if the same money was used in all of these different digital pockets and it all would just get built on top of Bitcoin as opposed to being um a different coin. So I'm I'm kinda curious where, where what your thought is on that. So I mean the answer though the, the direct answer is yes. The direct answer is absolutely one hundred percent. The reality is for us to do that in a, the shortest amount of time possible, um, we are going to have to have scaling solutions like Lightning Network, which I'm certain you're already aware of, right? Where we have these secondary networks that facilitate these transactions. And um, I'm a big capitalist, right? I believe in the open market. And I think that over time, um, we're going to experience a lot of consolidation and we're going to see a lot of projects die. And, you know, unfortunately that will happen. But... Uh, the the perfect solution, yes, is to have one universal system and that universal system be Bitcoin. I just don't think it will happen as quick as other capitalists will try to enter the market and drive competition onto the networks. And we have to realize, too, that, you know, there's these Fortune 500 companies that are going to build these very, you know, value add systems that people are just going to, Oh, I'm going to do that. Right. Because there's an education system that has to happen within society as well. So if you want to fast forward, let's say 80, hundred years. Okay. It is possible that happens, right? I feel like the technology, the Bitcoin devs are, you know, going ham and they're like, you know, figuring out how to scale this from, you know, 20, I think it's 25 TPS or is it 14? It's either 12. What's the TPS? I can't remember off the top of my head. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I don't know. I think it could get down to as low as like seven sometimes or four. Like, it kind of depends on who's <laughs> talking about it, right? Like, how, yeah. how bad they're trying to dunk on yeah, exactly. it. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, Jack Mahler's on your podcast. Dude, it's instantaneous. It's instantaneous. Yeah, Look, yeah, yeah. I can do it right now. Uh, yeah, no. So, to answer your question, it's more of a romantic point of view and an idealistic point of view versus where I think capitalism is going to naturally push us, right? And Here's what will happen, though, because I, like I, I can see you're following me and, and I see you nodding your head, is that is that people are going to get fed up with being the product, right? And it, I was reading this report about eight months ago about how much does a user cost to Facebook. And it was something between $35 and $50. Obviously, it was an estimation. That's how much you are worth, right? That's how much you're worth and you're getting none of that money, right? And so... As we drift into a Web3 economy, right? And I'm only talking about right now. I'm not talking about like what the future could be. I'm just talking about right now, the snapshot in time, is that networks like Ethereum and Solana, et cetera, right? Um, they power that today, right? And I do believe we can get there with Bitcoin. It's just, it's going to take a long time for us to make that a priority. Yeah, I think that's probably fair. I think I think the idea that like all these other projects are maybe kind of long-term research and development kind of departments for Bitcoin might actually end up kind of playing out. You know, they're going to try all these different things. You know, you know, you maybe go fast and break stuff over here, but you can't do that on Bitcoin because you need the security to be so robust. But then prove prove out whatever you want to prove out, whatever use case or whatever you want to do, and then eventually. We could just layer that on to Bitcoin or layer it on to Lightning. So there you go. I, I could see that maybe happening. I think it's just like I'm. I'm I, I guess sometimes I wonder why, and you know maybe it's because they just don't care. Maybe it's because there's there's more alpha in doing it yourself. But uh, I'm I wonder why there's so much development. Um, 
kind of on these other projects as opposed to someone coming to this space, maybe understanding Bitcoin first and then being like, hey, I could build a lot of cool stuff on top of this. Like, why are they all trying to kind of build their own layer ones or their own ecosystems? And what's kind of driving that um, incentive to be the case, whether it's just like greed or they're like certain technical shortcomings of uh, Bitcoin, at least at present, that makes it a lot easier to develop on these other other places? Or what do you, what do you think is kind of the uh, driver of that activity? Yeah, I mean, I, you just said it, to be honest with you. And it's currently technical shortcomings, but they're obviously overcome. You can overcome them. It's, you know, how much data can you store on chain, right? Like, you know, NFTs is a great example, right? But those, not all of them, which is, it's actually kind of concerning how much off-chain NFTs are like becoming prominent, which is very scary. That's a whole nother conversation for another time. But just being able to store data on the blockchain, right? Because, or, and having compute on the blockchain, like be able to make these very complex computations that will allow, you know, these crazy technological things to happen, right? The identity example I just gave you, right? There's a lot of stuff that happens on the back end. And, you know, if you have a global network that exceeds, you know, Visa, right? There's seven, almost 8 billion people on the planet now. And let's say like half of them because they're awake. So 3.54 billion people are trying to access their identity at the same time. All right, Bitcoin's not going to be able to power that currently. So what what is happening, right, is it's mainly that. It's not necessarily greed. Greed has a lot to like obviously account for. Because I mean, if you just go to coinmarketcap.com and look at the top 10 projects, all of them are multi-billion dollar, you know, market cap companies, right? And why would they not want to build a business for themselves? Why would they not want to, you know, facilitate capitalism? But ultimately, I, I mean, I'm going to paint the picture for you, which you already know. I can tell because I always see you smiling and nodding, is people will retreat to Bitcoin. Ultimately, it will happen because these networks will always have one shortcoming, right? And it will be that for the most part, they say they're decentralized, but a lot of these ledgers still are very centralized, right? And it could be across five wallets, six wallets, seven wallets, right? Until you have the Hydra, which you said earlier, which is never be shut off, right? Amazon uh, you know, Web Services, which powers the majority of all crypto projects. You know, if that goes down, I'm sorry, your blockchain's halting, right? Where Bitcoin, proof of work, once again, you have people running their you know, nodes all over the planet can never be shut down. And so people will ultimately retreat to that because it's still and will always be the hardest form of money ever created. And a little side note, because like I love to get a little playful and not so serious sometimes, even gold <laughs> isn't finite, right? Right now in space, about I think it's like five light years away, there's a giant meteor that's floating right now just in space that has the most gold it has more gold on that meteor than on the entire planet Earth, right? And whenever we send a, you know, a ship up there because we need more natural resources to put in our phones and our computers and all that because gold is a great conductor of electricity, right? They're going to fly up there. They're going to bring that meteor down and it's going to completely devalue gold. So even gold isn't scarce is basically what I'm trying to say. Yeah, no, that's a good one. I've had that thought too. It's like we just send, uh, you know, Bruce, Bruce Willis and Ben Affleck up there and all of a sudden just like 10x the amount of gold on earth because we just drag one of those meteors home. Like, it, yeah, it is an interesting idea. And like it is, 
Uh, I think it's also just the idea of like gold is, uh, you know, somewhat scarce. That's why kind of the market shows it to be money over thousands of years. But then if now that we've just created money as like an engineering problem and Satoshi was just like, okay, you need money to meet these parameters. I'll meet these parameters exactly. So it's like, it was an engineering solution to money. And since it's like digitally, it's like proven scarcity that can't be messed with and you can't create any more. And it, and that also means it doesn't, follow the same normal economic market dynamics, right? No matter how high the price of Bitcoin goes, you can't mine it any faster. You can't open any exactly. new mines. You can't put more any energy. So like it's, you, it's, it's completely like the issuance schedule is the issuance schedule. Even if it goes to $10 billion a coin and you would have every, you know, wildcat or wanting to run out there and start panning for it, you can't create it any faster. So it doesn't, it doesn't respond in the same kind of way that like market dynamics would increase the supply with kind of a, a price in, influx. So it's like, it's the only fixed supply asset we've ever seen on earth, you know? So it's like, I mean, like if, unless you count uh, like collectibles, right? Like the Mona Lisa, you can, you can't make, I mean, you can make copies of it, but it's not like the original or like a Tom Brady rookie card or something like that. But it's like, just like you said, I was like, and the other problem with gold is you, you can't know how much there is. So that's why there's like, um, you can't verifiably know exactly how much gold there is. And that's what allows this giant paper gold market to kind of manipulate the price and keep it keep it like under where it should be. And nobody really knows exactly what it should be. I mean, the fact that all Bitcoin is on chain and, you know, I mean, it's going to be really easy if all of a sudden there's, you know, 19 million Bitcoin in circulation. But there's 26 million to, like dollars of paper, paper Bitcoin floating around. It's not going to take very long for anyone to see that kind of ARB and then like. They're like, oh, I'm not going to hold paper Bitcoin. I don't even trust that at all because I know you. I mean, it's going to be obvious to everybody that there's too much of it, and that only if you hold the actual real thing can you be tr- like sure that you own anything. So I think it's just like it completely overcomes that shortcoming of gold that got us to depeg from sound money in the first place, and it's going to reintroduce that and kind of let us let us peg kind of permanently to uh, kind of sound money into perpetuity hopefully like i hope that's how this rolls out it's interesting talking about um the idea of uh kind of uh the only kind of truth i know we kind of circle but circling back to this but like the only truth is bitcoin and i I was kind of kicking around and i heard this idea of particularly now that we're getting into these um like chat gpt and these like ai and kind of deep fakes and all this stuff is getting so good i saw i forget who it was i wish i knew um like floated the idea that like in this new digital universe that's coming, particularly kind of over the next decade or so, it's going to be very, very difficult to, um, you know, kind of a touring test, understand what's real and what's not real because it's getting so good and it's getting so close to reality that the idea was like this proof of work system that runs Bitcoin. Bitcoin might end up in pretty short order being the only thing in the digital Internet world that you will know is true. Like it's going to be the only thing that you can verifiably know is true, which is just kind of an interesting idea when like there could be so many kind of fake, deep fake, different fake identities. And just like you said, if you could tie your identity to that or tie anything in the real world that you need to send or transact over the Internet, if you can put it through Bitcoin, you'll know that it's real and you'll know that it's true in kind of this new universe where you can't trust that anything's real you know like every tom only one out of 10 tom cruises you see on tv is the real tom cruise kind of idea yeah dude i mean you you just nailed it again and and that's why i'm so passionate about digital identity 
right, just to bring that back up again, is that we are going to need these systems in place to guarantee, I, I was very particular about my word choice, proof of humanity, proof of humanness, right? And that's going to become increasingly, increasingly more important. Yeah, I actually saw, I don't know, I saw something today about there's like, there's literally these like OnlyFans accounts that are now AI, but so like people are paying for OnlyFans accounts for like a robot, you know, it's like, we're we're getting to that point in very quick order. I saw another funny Twitter thing. I was talking about like Janet Yellen. It was like talking about like, Hey, we have to go to extraordinary measures to pay, to pay for this debt. And somebody's like, Oh, she opened an OnlyFans account. And that made me laugh pretty hard. I was like, that's pretty hilarious. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, Yellen's pretty funny. I mean, just uh, listening to her talk about we're not going to have inflation, right? Whenever Biden came into the office, like all my orange pill friends were like, that, 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 that is 100% what's going to happen. Like we printed 80% of the money supply in eight months. Like, what do you mean inflation's not going to happen? This is kind of like the writings on the wall, right? Like inflation doesn't happen immediately. It, it's coming. And like, and then she rolls out, you know, what is it? Six months later, she's back on 60 Minutes and like, we've made some mistakes. I'm like, no, no, what? Yeah, absolutely <laughs> you did. Yeah, come on. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. I see him talking. It was like, hey, like they're talking about the debt ceiling raise. Like, I know that's kind of where we started. But the whole idea is like, uh, you know, we have to raise the debt ceiling because like the U.S. always pays its bills. And it, like every time I hear that them say that, it just makes me almost die inside because I was like, uh, hey guys, you don't get to thirty-one trillion dollars of debt if you're paying your bills. Like that is like that's that's exactly what you're not doing, and that's exactly what you're never going to do. So like that just it just that earworms me. It just hits my hits my ear weird. And I know you mentioned it before, like talking about that kind of debt, about how like hey, it's like ninety-six thousand dollars per citizen or something like that. And it's uh, I mean. If you just look at the math, there's no way we're ever paying it. There's no ever way we're never attempting to pay it back. So like the idea that like inflation is going to go away or it's like transitory or it's nothing to worry about is like, you know, it's I think what happened was, you know, if like if all of history is juice, we got like uh, like orange juice concentrate during COVID for like two years. So like all the same things they've been doing on like that a slow drip pace just got just the, all the dials got turned up for like a year or two. Mm-hmm. It just made it so there was like nowhere to hide. It made it undeniable. It made it so obvious for anyone that was paying a lick of attention. So, I mean, you look at that, it's like uh, when, you know, that 96,000, that's just the 31 trillion of like debt. If you put in the unfunded liabilities of like 172 trillion, all these promises of Medicare and social security that they made that they haven't funded. I mean, you're talking, I think it comes out to uh, like, it's like, 500,000 something per person. And then like, so you mm-hmm. think like a family of four owes like 2 million bucks. And then uh, also on that national debt clock, you can look up and it's like, it's like savings per family. That's like $5,000. Oh. So like, I mean, the Delta is just like ridiculous. So it's just like, I mean, if, if and there's no way you get out of that uh, kind of death spiral. Like the, the error term is like Greg Foss likes to say, the error term of the equation is the currency. They're going to have to print it forever it's just i mean it's just a matter of like how fast this thing unravels like there's no kind of going going back to where we where we started there's no reasonable rational way out so i have a i have a way out but you're not gonna like it, uh, it I, i'm curious coin? if anyone uh, it's not the trillion dollar coin all right remember how i told you that it's impossible for the united states to run out of money remember me saying at the very very beginning of the call 
what they could yep. do, right, and it's insane, but they could do it, is they could print enough money to buy as much Bitcoin as they want secretly. They can buy as much Bitcoin as they want and just control the majority of the supply and intentionally devalue the currency, all right, and then say, you know what, Bitcoin is now, like, what we're backing against. And overnight, they've created a currency that they control because they have the majority of it, okay, and we're now pegging, instead of U.S. dollars, we're pegging against Bitcoin. That could happen. Yeah. Yeah, no, legal tender. Like, I think that's what they should do, honestly. Like, if anyone's looking at this in any kind of game theoretical, like, everybody is checkmated. So my hope is that the U.S. figures exactly that out before everyone else does. Because one of these countries, they're all, they're all screwed. They're all pinned to the mat. They're all running out of breath. One of them is going to realize that before all the other ones do. And there's going to be a brief moment in time where uh, basically without competition, you're going to be able to print yourself Bitcoin as a sovereign, whether it's Japan or China or Russia or any of these other Latin American countries or Mexico or like, I mean, somebody's going to figure that out and they're going to do it first. And I hope we're smart enough to do it first. Like I, but like, I think, mm-hmm. I think, unfortunately, I think we have the most to lose because being in control of kind of the whole dollar reserve Bretton Woods system, we have the most to lose by giving that up. So it, it would take a, it would take a very um, kind of self-aware leader to be like, this is going to sound crazy, but it's actually our only option. So let's, let's execute. And then at the end of the day, I mean, it's not a hard sell to the people. Cause I mean, honestly, Bitcoin in my eyes is the most American idea of all time. I mean, you want to look, go back to like the very beginning of like life, liberty, property, like now you just have something that's like unconfiscatable, permissionless, uh, you know, digital property that anybody on earth can have without like their government's permission. That's the most kind of frontiersman American idea of all time in the money space. So I, I would mm-hmm. love to like we, we kind of pay. We, I, I like to say uh, uh, we kind of pay lip service to these American ideals all the time just to kind of get votes or whatever and then do the exact opposite. But um, mm-hmm. I think I think Bitcoin is going to put all these because I think you're I think you've seen your last political cycle where Bitcoin's not going to be uh, some kind of topic or at least a debate question, or you're going to have to have some position on it, right? So I think I think with a, what the beauty thing, the beautiful thing that Bitcoin does for the American people is every time a politician says, hey, I'm for freedom, I'm for individual liberty, I'm for this and that, Bitcoin just says, prove it. Because it's right here. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Prove it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you just got me spinning out inside of my head because, I mean, you're absolutely right. I mean, it's it's already happening. Um, you know, me personally, I write. I actually write every single representative that is going to represent me. And I ask them very clearly, like, hey, I see that you're running for office. Send them an email every single time. What's your stance on Bitcoin? And, uh, you know, very separately because I do have a delineation. What's your stance on crypto? And uh, are you pro or are you against? And um, people ask me, like, where I lean politically all the time. I'm very comfortable to say I actually don't have a political party. But what I am is uh, I have a uh, – uh, what's it called? A, a red line. My red line is, is do you support the, you know, the next industrial revolution or do you not? Right? And I believe that Bitcoin is the most important piece of the next industrial revolution. And so if someone's against Bitcoin, it's a deal breaker for me. I like I don't care what political party you are, 
you know, I don't care if, you know, if you're an independent and you support Bitcoin, like, hey, I'm, you're who I'm voting for because I see the long-term, you know, uh, roadmap. And I feel like that's the biggest problem with our society today is we're so short-sighted, right? It's all about the same issues, right, that we keep on just going back and forth on, whether it be, you know, abortion or, you know, gay rights or – and I'm not trying to trivialize those things at all, you know. And, you know, I, I know it sounds that way, and I do apologize if anyone is offended by it. But what I'm specifically saying right now is that my hope is that as a society, we can look at long-term effects of how this one single decision ultimately will affect those decisions as well. Because if you are in control of your absolute sovereignty, right – Right, your sovereignty, which you know, in the beginning it was all about states' rights, right? That was what you know really determined you know the Civil War. Is like, is this a state rights thing, right, or is it not? Well, the reason why it was at the state level is because we were disconnected. We didn't have this miracle called the internet. We didn't have the ability to connect with people all over the planet, right? Which is we're going to become more of a community-based society, right? Where you rely more heavily on your community of choice, whether that be locally or online. And that sovereignty will be enabled by hard currencies like Bitcoin. Yeah, I agree with that. I think what's going to happen is you're going to kick it down the stack. If if we empower people using this kind of tool, they they become uh, very sovereign, very mobile. Very, it's very difficult to just, uh, you know, take their wealth or take it. So you're going to have to compete for them, you know? So like that's going to be jurisdictional in states. That's going to be jurisdictional in countries. That's going to be jurisdictional because if I can just literally leave the country with, you know, nothing but, you know, some board shorts and a t-shirt on, but, oh, but also I memorized a few words and I'm taking my entire life savings with me and you don't even realize that's happening. It changes the calculus of what's going on. So, I mean, I, I completely agree with that. And I think, I just think the incentives are aligned. So I'm, I'm optimistic about Bitcoin's future and how it kind of moves that political process. Cause just like you said, you're not alone, man. Like, uh, Bitcoiners are, they're single issue voters. Cause there's nothing, there's nothing that they see that has more potential for human freedom going forward. And there's, they're going to die on that Hill and there's nothing else you can do or say that's going to change their mind or sway them off that needle. And I think, I think if I know like our political process, there's going to be a lot of candidates that are licking their lips and getting their hands on, you know, 100 million people just a, a pop just by saying yep i support bitcoin you get all of that voting block that's going to be really from a political you know game theoretical point of view very enticing to just take that position mm-hmm. hopefully they won't just kind of like bait and switch it and kind of rug pull it on the back end and they hopefully will be held accountable for that but yeah i 100 percent, i 100 percent agree with you it's just like there's a lot of people that that's going to be their main political driving force. And I think just, it's going to Trojan horse its way in and like, it's going to, ex- mm-hmm. it's going to expose everybody's incentives. Cause like I said, all you have to say is prove it. As soon as Bitcoin kind of becomes a political um, topic, it's going to become very obvious where people not, not only like where they stand and why, but also just like, how knowledgeable is this person as a leader? Because have they even tried to do their homework on something that could be like a revolutionary technology? Or are they saying just completely flippant yeah. Jamie Dimon nonsense? And it's going to be very obvious. And it's it's going to be very hard to hide because all of a sudden when it becomes uh, elevated to that level, it's going to become everyone's going to be talking about it. And it's it's going to basically force everybody to do their homework or just look like a total chump. So 
that's going to be good. I'm looking forward to that. Like, I'm not a super political person. I don't really believe that you're going to like kind of turn this thing around before it hits the iceberg. But I am very uh, optimistic about how Bitcoin is going to play inside that game. And since it's incentivized the best, how it's going to move the pieces around. I think it's going to be really interesting to watch. Yeah. So just, just out of curiosity, you say Jamie Dimon. I'm, take, I'm taking it that you watched his Davos uh, CNBC clip where he said, how do we know that Bitcoin's not going to exceed 21 million? And you just see like the host that actually know what's going on. They're like, oh my God, I can't believe he just said that. He, he really, he doesn't know how this works, right? Like they're just like looking yeah. at him. Or maybe he's just being so malicious. He's just being so malicious, like you said earlier, that, you know, he's hoping that he can get away with it and just you know, pull the rug out from underneath those people that don't pay attention or, you know, they don't know. And it was, man, I was sitting there watching it with my mouth open. I was like, I can't believe that dude just said that. He's supposed to be really, really smart. Yeah. Like, what is this? Yeah. Right. It seemed too, it seemed too cringe to be malicious. It like, it didn't seem to have enough tact to be malicious. Cause I don't think you, even if you were, your intent was, Hey, I'm going to try to destroy this thing making yourself look like a complete moron and like losing all credibility out of the gates is probably not the best way to go about it. And the fact he's like, how do you not know it just gets the, like the last Bitcoin and then Satoshi's face pops up and just laughs at you all. And I'm just like, Oh my God, this is so hard to even kind of watch. And I was like, I put out a, I put out a tweet about that. I was like, I was like, Hey, I'm not a psychologist, but I'm pretty sure Jamie Dimon must've had a dream of Satoshi laughing at him. Because yeah. I think he knows, I mean, he knows that, you know, like, I think I saw something where JP Morgan makes, uh, like, I don't know what the number is, but a large percentage of their um, revenue comes from that kind of foreign exchange arbitrage trading you were kind of talking about, right? Like all the Forex trading, which, you know, all of a sudden the, the globe goes on a Bitcoin standard where you don't really have to trade ex- like currencies against each other. They just have to trade against Bitcoin, which is kind of the one referee on the field that everything has to be pegged to. And it kind of keeps everybody in check. You don't, there's really no arbitrage opportunity. So all of that kind of dies. So I could see why he would want to be malicious, but I was like, Jamie, come on, man. I was like, even if you're going to try to do this, you're going to have to at least, uh, have a little more respect for your opponents and like, do, mm-hmm. like come up with a, a smarter argument. Like that was just so embarrassing. I felt embarrassed for him. I'm just like, he's going to be fine. You know, he's got way more money than me. He's not going to sit back and be like, Oh, that guy thinks I'm an idiot. But I was just like, Oh my God, it was just hard to watch. And the fact that like these kind of a uh, journalists that usually will just kind of kowtow to these people, even they were just like, what, what? Like, are you serious right now? And it was like, it was like, I mean, I hope he felt that, that, discomfort too and goes back to the drawing board and does a little more homework and comes up with some kind of better argument because i mean if that's all they got bitcoin's gonna steamroll these people like it's gonna be it's gonna be easy i mean the inverse kramer you know etf you know you know that's a meme is uh is performing really well right now against his anti-crypto uh, uh you know mindset at the moment so yeah man i i just i think that information sharing on reddit and Twitter has really enabled our society to become more aware of you know, financial um, information as well as having a better financial education. And the days of old where we could just be manipulated by CNBC saying buy, 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 sell, 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 I think those days are actually coming to a very quick end. 
Yeah, no, that's a great point. It's kind of talking about it, like even go back to the World War One about how loud this is propaganda, about how this is oversubscribed. It's so much harder to get away with that anymore just because there's so many different facets of information to kind of check everything. So, yeah, it's a great point, man. But, hey, I think we got there, man. So, uh, so what, what did we not touch on? What's the one big Bitcoin thing that we need to explain to people or did we hit it all? We definitely didn't hit it all. I mean – we didn't hit it all at all. Like I told you, man, I truly believe you and I could go round for round. You know, like I'll talk to you in a year, right? And we'll still be like finding new things. But uh, I guess the one thing I would like to say, you know, your podcast is, you know, I guess tailored to people discovering Bitcoin and trying to learn more about it. And uh, so I'll just leave with this is that, you know, th- this isn't hyperbole. It, this isn't romanticism. This isn't you know, propaganda on my part, I don't benefit uh, from this at all, is that Bitcoin is your one opportunity at true freedom. And I hope that if you're listening to this, that you really listen to what I'm saying. And you think about it from every aspect that we touched upon this evening and how that could actually affect you, right? Where, like, I want you to be able to always know that your money will be sound. It won't be devalued. And that, you know, for example, right now in society, if, if you hold your money in a savings account, it's constantly just being devalued. Like, why would you ever hold your money in a savings account? It doesn't make any sense. Whereas if you hold your Bitcoin, I promise you that that is going to be more valuable than any paper debt. Because that's what money actually is. It's debt. It isn't value. It's debt. will hold over you. So, yeah, I just... I hope you discover Bitcoin and you embrace it. Yeah, no, yeah, I agree with that, man. I think about it like uh, imagine you got paid in water and you brought it home every day and then you you put it in your in your in a big bucket and there was a hole in it. Like how long would you go before you would go find a new bucket and quit putting your your like what you're getting like quit putting your Kool-Aid in a bucket that just has a like a you know that hole is there. You see it draining out all over the floor all the time. How long is it going to take before you either cap that off or you get a new bucket or you come up with a new plan? And I think now that you have that, I mean it's just a matter of just going to it, you know? Like do quit getting stolen from. I think I, what I what I get frustrated is like um now you have to kind of go to work. You have to learn a trade, whether you're a chef or you play guitar, you do whatever you do. You're a construction worker and you have to know that you have to know how to do that. And then well, you get that paycheck and then you bring it home. And then just to like outpace inflation, all of a sudden you also have to be a financial expert or you also have to be an Airbnb landlord or you also have to be you got to you got to come up with some other kind of gig just to try to outpace that was like wouldn't it be nice if we could just go back to you go to work you get paid you come home you save your money you enjoy your family and you go back to work like like you don't have to worry you don't have to be wringing your hands about I saw today it was like rent as percentage of income just hit an all-time high like so we're just at this place where everyone sees it, everyone feels it. Life is just getting, uh, life is getting more and more expensive. It's getting prohibitively expensive, and uh, I like to say it was like since since we just talked about all that math, and you know that this inflation is going to continue. I like to tell people I was like, man, life is really expensive, and it's the cheapest it's ever going to be. Like, it's super expensive, and it's never going to be cheaper than it is right now. So like once you kind of wrap your head around that this is just you're mathematically getting chewed on and it's not going to stop, that's how when I encourage people is like just give this a look. 
give this a consideration. Think that through. Like now that you're actually feeling the pressure and it's not just a slow 3% bleed, but you actually are noticing that you can't really afford to pay for everything, know that that's not going to get better and then come, you know, join the revolution. You know, like, and I don't mean like, hey, just go like, but I was like, come learn about this, start to see it in a different light, not as a speculative trade, but as actually like something that's going to make a freer future for you and your kids and your kids' kids. And like, then it takes on a different, it takes on a different light and it just becomes a different conversation. And I think everybody benefits once that's what it's viewed as, you know, it, it is freedom. So let's just, you know, let's just be free. Love it. Let's do it. Let's be free, brother. <laughs> All right, man, we'll leave it there. I would love to do this again at some point. Just like you said, it was like, you know, these conversations, they could go, uh, you know, they can go 10 feet deep. Like you can really never get to the bottom. Like there's always something new to kind of talk about. It's going to continue to evolve, but Oh, Hey man, I know I like, I'm, I'm really patient with people that are new to Bitcoin. Cause it was like, I remember I was like a volunteer firefighter at one point, And I remembered like, uh, being a brand new guy, you know, some guys were really salty and old and jerks. And like, like, I guess they just forgot that they weren't just born firefighters and they actually had to learn everything. So like, and then there were some that were like, cool. And it was like, Hey, I'm going to try to like give you a shortcut and not make you have to do everything I had to do. I'm going to try to help you along. So I try to be that for people. I'm super patient. I want people to come with their like most basic uh, questions and get those kind of answer and just kind of like take those first steps and kind of make this a little less intimidating. But all that being said, man, that was really enjoyable for me to find kind of a kindred spirit that you could kind of have that kind of like, you know, higher protocol layer conversation. So thanks for taking the time, man. I really appreciate it. And uh, I think everyone got something out of that. So I appreciate, I appreciate you coming on. All right, dude. Thanks again for having me. It was a real, real fun time. I don't mean, I, I say this with absolute sincerity. It's not every day that you get to fully nerd out with someone, right? Like this is a rarity <laughs> and it doesn't happen that often unless you go to a conference or something. So yeah, man, this was great. Thank you so much. Yeah, we definitely did that, man. We went full nerd emoji, dude. We put the tape on the glasses and threw it on, and we got after it, man. But that was that was awesome. So, uh, yeah, you take care, man. We'll uh, we'll talk to you. We'll talk to you soon for sure. I've no doubt. All right, cool, man. All right, man. Take care. All right, all right. Thank you guys for tuning into the Taking Care of Bitcoin podcast. If you want to get in touch. Find me on Twitter at TCBcoin. That's at TCBcoin. All right. Catch you next time. See ya.